0: With Conair Girlbomb, available at Walgreens.
3: Hi, I'm Molly John Fast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds. And Joe Biden says it's time fascism is called fascism. And Americans know exactly what they're voting for. He's right. We have such a great show for you today. Author Ben Mesrick stops by to talk about his new book, Breaking Twitter, Elon Musk, and the most controversial corporate takeover in history, Oh, by the way, it's gotten worse. Then we'll talk to the editor of the Nevada Independent, John Ralston. But first, we have the host of The Time of Monsters, the nation's Jeet here. Welcome back to Fast Politics. Jeet here.
1: Good to be back on the program. You are my favorite.
3: I am so excited that we have you. It is, you know, the run-up to Thanksgiving. I... Wanted you back here for any number of reasons. You're my go-to in all things Canada. Just kidding. I'm sorry. That's like the meanest thing. No, Canada is great and we love it and it matters a lot in the world, but just not right now. But I want to talk to you about where we are right now in this. Like, I feel like we're at the end of primary season, except there were no primaries. Discuss.
1: Yeah, on on both sides there were no primaries. I yeah. mean, on the Republican side, you kind of have this like farcical situation where Trump is just so far ahead, you know, he doesn't even need to debate. And that turned out to be a smart strategy on his part. It's uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Snow White is the star. That's Trump. And the little (laughs) Seven (laughs) Dwarves fought amongst themselves. Uh, 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 And they all lost. And they all lost. They all lost. I mean, there's a a big push now to say, well, Nikki Haley is on the rise and she's a credible opponent to uh, Trump. And their best polling is in New Hampshire, where she's like 30 points behind Trump, right? Like (laughs) she's at 20%. And uh, New Hampshire is like exceptional among Republicans because it's it's a more liberal state and her and Chris Christie are are doing well there. But that's not the Republican electorate like anywhere else. Certainly in Iowa, she's not getting anywhere. But conversely, I mean, the one reason she's on the rise is that, you know, Ron DeSantis is going down. He's actually like fourth in New Hampshire, which is like Amazing. All the seven dwarves are basically candidates put forward by some billionaire thinking, you know, it'd be nice to own a president and, and, and maybe Trump right. won't get it. And they're all faltering. There's really no contest on the Republican side, except maybe the contest for being vice president. Vivek Ramaswamy might be an interesting kind of pick just because he has some of that Trump energy and he had a brief bubble, which has already bursted. So yeah, I don't actually see anyone yeah. on the... Tim Scott? Got a girlfriend where, you know, a few days he was was (laughs) photographed with a live human woman. With a
3: lady. Yes, yes. Yeah,
1: yeah. And this will be the only achievement of of these uh, wannabe Trumps that, uh, you know, Tim Scott's uh, very brief flirtation with uh, human sexuality. Now, on the Democratic side, I mean, the same thing has kind of happened. I mean, like, on the one hand, there's a considerable number of Democrats who actually are not that enthusiastic about Biden being the nominee but the one thing that keeps on going is that like there's no credible alternative
3: right there's no way
1: yeah, yeah yeah i mean like william said i i know friend of the family
3: pause the tape here we're gonna this is a low blow from jeet here my first cousin who i haven't spoken to in years and years and years peter dow was briefly her campaign manager thank oh, you okay. friend okay. of the Is <laughs> cheat Very sorry naughty. about that sorry
1: about that peter dow How many people has he been campaign managers for? Because he's also like campaign manager for briefly for Cornell last.
3: Yes! Everyone who can hurt Biden has at one time employed my first cousin, Peter Dow.
1: No, no, i have to say this is uh, my weird theory because Peter Dow had worked for Hillary Clinton, another yes. winning <laughs> candidate uh, <laughs> right. in 2016. Uh, so I, I have to say that uh, my, my working theory is that he is actually the greatest sleeper cell agent right. in the history of American yes. politics.
3: I, I'm only laughing to keep from crying. But yes, I think that's for sure true.
1: So, yeah, no, no. So Williamson isn't happening. Cornell West, like, you know, jump from party to party, like, you know, started at a fringe party, moved to the Greens. He's not going to the Greens. He's going to run some sort of campaign where, like, there's no chance he'll be on any ballot. And RFK Jr., like, you know, he's running a great campaign if you want to be a Republican. He actually could have. I think if he had actually run as a Republican, he actually might have had the best shot against Trump. Like, I think he has yeah. some of that, like, celebrity wacko energy and there's enough sort of like boomers that have some memory of like Kennedy and had been Democrats. And there is some of that, like, you know, old counterculture crowd that has moved because of QAnon and because of COVID has moved to the GOP. He could have had a credible run. But but in any case, who the hell knows what he's doing? Is he, is he still running as a Democrat? He's moved into
3: being an independent. But the reality yeah. is he
1: will act as a
3: spoiler. Maybe he knows this. Maybe he doesn't care. As someone who had the experience of being on the wrong side of him in Austin when he tried to heckle my interview with Dr. Peter Hotez. The TLDR I got from seeing him and the way he acted towards me and towards Dr. Hotez is that he's basically a member of the alt-right at this point.
1: That's right. That's right. Yeah. And as such, I mean, I mean, I mean, the one interesting thing about him is he might actually be a spoiler, but maybe a spoiler for the Republicans. Right.
3: They're getting nervous now.
1: There are people in the Trump camp that are worried that he's going to take more votes from them than Biden. And I think that, that seems very plausible. But in any case, on the Democratic side, yeah, no plausible opposition has emerged. I mean, like one could, in theory, think that something could happen just because usually if you have a Democrat that's unpopular, uh, like Lyndon Johnson 68 or Jimmy Carter in 80, you do have some uh, opposition figure within the party that emerges. But in both those cases, that ended up like electing Republicans. And I actually think that the Democrats the actual plausible Democrats who could have run against Joe Biden, none of them have. That, that's pretty significant. I mean,
3: kind of an endorsement of Joe Biden in a lot of ways.
1: We'll see a year from now whether the wisdom of that. But it is a fact that the party, um, the elected officials and anyone who is a plausible Democratic candidate has not run against Joe Biden. That's there is no primary on that end either. Apologies to Ms. Williamson.
3: One of the things I want to talk to you about, which I think is so relevant and important here, I have this theory I want to sort of talk to you about because you and I, I think of us as internet people, right? We live there, you know, we live in our homes with our spouses, but we also really live on the internet. One of the things with these bad polls is that we see that the person who kills it in these polls is the generic D right? They are the person who calls it. And in 2015, the person who got the nomination was the generic D, Joe Biden. Joe Biden's, his favorability numbers are low, very low. Hillary Clinton level low. Do you think that part of what happened and part of what Biden world needs to do is they need to fill the vacuum? So for example, Hunter Biden is on the cover of the New York Post every day for two weeks, right? Mm -hmm. Hunter's laptop, Hunter's this, Hunter's hookers, Hunter's this, Hunter's that. And there's no one in Biden world going like, look, Ivanka's husband, Jared, manages $2 billion for Mohammed bin Salman. How did he meet Mohammed bin Salman? Let us take a moment and pause. Oh, when he brought peace to the Middle East. Here's what's not happening. Peace in the Middle East. Here's what is happening. Jared carried interest on $2 billion. Discuss.
1: It is absolutely the case that Biden as president, you know, like is not able to command the stage. And that's like, you know, for a bunch of reasons. I think partially it's also like a decision on their end. Like, you know, like I think that they did buy the theory that, you know, like Biden won because he was banal, because he would allow people to have brunch and he would restore calmness to politics and not be, like, you know, tweeting all the time. He, he would be the anti-Trump, right? I don't know if that's why he won. And I certainly think that the Democrats who have won since Biden haven't won on the strategy of, like, keeping things calm and, like, being invisible. Like, I think Democrats have, like, actually had a lot of success in the, both the midterms and the special elections, and it usually comes from being, sort of, fiercely partisan. But, I mean, having said that, the thing is, It'll come down. I think if it's like Trump versus Biden, there you know might be an issue. And I have to remind people: like, 2020 was close. It was not close in the popular vote, but actually, in the terms of the Electoral College victory, it was closer than 2016. Like, you know, like 40,000 votes in three states would have given us like a second Trump presidency. Now, but on the generic question, Democrats are better, and so there are ways in which this can become. And I think it is going to become not Biden versus Trump, but Democrats versus Republicans. First of all, the Democrats actually, I think, have a great bench. People don't realize this, but I mean, like, there's just a lot of good uh, Democratic talent in sort of the governors and uh, also among the, uh senators. So, like, if you make it, if you bring out the, you know, all the heavy hitters, which I think actually also happened in 2020, like, if you actually saw who was campaigning, like, you know, like Obama and Bernie and yeah, they were campaigning as much as Biden yeah. was, right? Okay, so if we imagine a scenario next year where there's indications the White House wants to run a front porch campaign, uh, not have Biden out there a lot, but you could have, you know, if you have Obama, Bernie, uh, Elizabeth Warren, Whitmer, Warnock, Newsom, like put everyone, the whole team out there and make it like the key issues, you know, domestically are abortion, like a vote for Trump right. is a vote for a party that, you know, like actually is still committed to like a federal abortion ban, which is like hugely unpopular. I I think that gets you a lot of the way there. And I have to say, you know, like we don't want to talk about foreign policy, but like I think in a lot of ways the foreign policy, whatever else you can say about it, is a bit of a distraction because, you know, the more time that takes up on the front page of the headlines, I think one piece of bad luck is like the foreign policy dominates. And then like everything that's happened to Trump in terms of all the court cases and all the... Uh, information that's come out about Trump in the last few weeks, it hasn't been in the headlines. It hasn't circulated. I mean, it's been the headlines like in the back of the newspaper. It hasn't been something that's like been really taken up. And so, I mean, I think a lot will depend on if there's like some of these like foreign policy crises are diffused. I think Biden will be in a much better place because he will then become, you know, Democrats versus Republicans or even Democrats versus Trump in the sense that it will be a Trumpized GOP. I think you can win on that.
3: Yeah. And it's interesting. I mean, the idea here, though, the importance here is that if you allow a vacuum, a news vacuum, then it gets filled and it gets filled with people like Jack Posobiec and the Breitbart crew. This is the brave, new, completely unregulated world of social media. There is no one coming to tell the truth. Right. The truth is whatever people are seeing in a headline. I mean, this is the really sad state of things and I think what's really scary to me as a person who really dwells there is that we're seeing there is no fact check. What Elon Musk has done very successfully, it may have been intentional, it may not have been intentional, but he has removed all of the fact checks. You know, they do have community notes, but again, you can get noted for things that may or may not
1: be true, right? Yeah, it's, it's a very mixed thing. Well, I i mean, in terms of del- whether Musk was deliberate, I mean, I think he's just an idiot who shut off his mouth, but ended up controlling Twitter but, you know, once he controls Twitter, he wants to make it his, his own end. But there are other people. I mean, we're seeing a huge sort of right wing push to build on the Breitbart model. You know, they're creating all these like fake news sites. Uh, they're buying Univision, you know, like one of the main outlets uh, with uh, Spanish speaking Americans. Get their news, you know, like is now controlled by the right. And you need those voters. Well, we need those voters. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and unfortunately, I mean, the thing is, if we're talking about the, you know, the big media, Outlets like you know, the Democrats are outgunned simply by the fact that you know they're more Republican billionaires and they're more invested in creating this game for Star Care. You know, occasionally you occasionally see something like if you remember Air America like 20 years ago, there's occasional yeah, attempts yeah, to yeah. you know, but but it's it's nowhere near the same league. I do think that there's a lot of energy you know, on the left and people are creating their own media spaces. They're not like these big corporations. And I think that if you have a leader that's charismatic enough, they can override that. I mean, I think the one thing with Trump is, it's, you know, like he got a lot of earned media, you know, like because he just was a celebrity. Yeah, he got a lot of free media too. Yeah, free media, yeah. But you could say that, the same about Obama. Like Obama became a genuine celebrity and they very cleverly, like they went on things that weren't political. Obama would go on sports podcasts, right? Listened to like tons of people. Uh, not people who like, you know, normally pay attention to headlines or news. But, you know, like people got the impression like, you know, Obama is this guy. Now, I don't know if Biden, this is, you know, partially who he is, but it's also partially who he's chosen to be. He's chosen to try to be like the old style politician, you know, who tries to do backroom deals and uh, work Washington, he can't do that. But I don't know if it's just on him. Like I do think this is like democracy depends on more than one person. And I do think that if the Democrats have a strategy where they're putting their people like on these new media outlets and trying to reach people, you know, that can even the field a little bit.
3: Yeah, I mean, that is a really good point. I think about that a lot and just how important it is to sort of adjust that way. So what you're saying is a really good point about how really Democrats need to fill this vacuum. They need to focus on getting their guy out there. I do think that January 1, people are going to wake up and be like, holy shit. I mean, the thing is, Trump is tweeting about vermin. I mean, thank God Trump is... Nah, Ron DeSantis, thank God,
1: right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, well, this is the thing. This is like the whole media vacuum that we're talking about. I mean, Trump is like, you know, much more openly fascist than he's ever been. Than anyone, right? Yeah, he's he's sort of like, you know, hinting at, you know, he'll like execute the top brass of the Pentagon, you know. It's really wild stuff. And I gotta say, my whole sense is it's not circulating. It's not, you know, certainly the Republican media is not picking up on it, but the more you know, neutral or Democratic media, it's not what people are talking about. All the polling would indicate it's not resonating. And you have to figure out a way to make that the top issue and make it resonate. I feel like it's all going to tighten up a lot when it is, you know, Biden versus Trump. That's what it is. I think, you know, like a front porch campaign is not going to work. <laughs> just and I I know there are reports like in political and elsewhere, like this is what the White House is thinking. You know, it's like that's not the reality. Um, That's certainly not how, how Democrats have won elections over the last few years. And I think the only hope I can see is if you bring out the whole team, <laughs> like, like if you just bring out everyone who's like a heavy hitter, just put them out there all the time.
3: Yeah jeet here we're gonna be doing this a lot so please forgive me thanks for coming on can't wait to have you back
1: okay always a pleasure
3: I sleep better at night knowing my family is protected if something ever happens to me, since I was able to compare plans very easily at policygenius.com. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quote and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com.
1: You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story,
0: of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's
1: online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. The following ad is sponsored by Pet's Best Insurance Services.
2: Ben Mesrick is the author
3: of Breaking Twitter, Elon Musk, and the most controversial corporate takeover in history. Welcome Ben to Fast Politics.
4: Hey, thank you so much for having me.
3: So the book is called Breaking Twitter. and Elon Musk and the most controversial (laughs) corporate takeover in history, which it really is. Talk to me about how you decided to write this book.
4: I try and write stories that are about big moments in, in either cultural history or technological history, things that, you know, the world is changing. And these are those moments, those origins of some big change. And obviously Elon taking over Twitter became a very, very big story. I got interested in it. On the one hand, I was a big fan of Elon Musk in that I thought he's someone who's trying to push us forward. Previous to him taking Twitter, he was, you know, the genius behind Tesla and SpaceX. He was, whenever you talked about him, he was, you know, in the same sentence as like Edison or one of the great entrepreneurs of of our time. And then he dove into Twitter and it just spiraled out of control in in my opinion and from a cinematic point of view it was just kind of a movie being written in front of me and i'm always looking for very cinematic stories and then a lot of people just started coming to me who had either been just fired or were still working with him or people even on his team who were just saying this is so crazy someone should write about it and i started to hear the stories and then then someone re- from hollywood reached out so it kind of all came <laughs> together And I dove in and started writing it.
3: You know, it's funny because I was at Twitter before it happened. You know, he like made the offer. And then there were a couple of months where it was like, will he or won't he? Right. And I was there and I was talking to them and and everyone, the consensus was it was not going to happen. Right. And it seemed like it was not going to happen. And he was going to have to pay this wildly enormous kill fee. And then one day it did happen. So what happened there?
4: Yeah. You know, he went in. For a couple reasons. And so in in my view, and from all the research I've done, he really felt like he was going in for the right reasons, where there was this woke mind virus sweeping across Twitter, and it was moderating conservative voices, and free speech was dying. And he believed that there had to be this organ of free speech for us to get to Mars. It's kind of a convoluted theory, but the, the idea is that we have this window open in which we can get to Mars and become interplanetary and save us from Uh, some sort of civilization ending doom. And to do that, he needed to save Twitter. So that was his initial reasons for getting in. But He wasn't taking it all that seriously. He made a crazy offer, which was way too much money. And very quickly, he started getting pushback from Tesla insiders, people who saw that he was going to have to sell shares and divide his attention. And this was the first time this kind of group of faithful people pushed back at him. And that, combined with the idea that he realized he was paying way too much for it, made him change his mind. And he decided to get out of it. And he claimed it was all about bots. He didn't know there were so many bots. But, you know, there, there were a lot of bots. But then they sued him. They came to him and said, you have to take us over. And it became this battle between their lawyers and him and his lawyers. And he would have to pay this crazy fee to get out, which he should have done probably.
3: Right. Which still would have saved him $40 billion or something.
4: Well, worse than that. And the whole concept of my book is that, you know, Elon Musk didn't break Twitter. Twitter broke Elon Musk. It ruined his reputation. It ruined him for half the country. You know, it was not worth it at all. This this, this is a horrible move. But at that point, it became a thing of pride. And he decided to take it and he took it angrily. And that's why he sort of crashed through the gate reluctantly. But once he was there, he just started burning it down.
3: How does he service this debt? I mean, he wildly overpaid probably about twice, maybe three times what it was really worth. I mean, doesn't he have to service like a billion dollars of debt every month?
4: Yeah, it's crazy. They're trying to rewrite history and saying that Twitter was already on its last legs. And the reality was financially... Twitter was doing fine it was yeah. very close to break even if not break even I mean it wasn't making tons of money but you know nothing is and then he came in and and because of the debt structure it's suddenly losing money from the minute he walks in the doors and then he chases all the advertisers away. So not only did he overpay, but he cut their revenue <laughs> so enormously that they themselves now value it at $18 billion, which is probably an inflated valuation. And so it's it's more than half declined from where he started. So, yes, he has to keep sort of it alive. All the banks are, are looking at a huge write off on this. And that's why he's doing all these crazy things to try and make it profitable. So even though he came in with these intentions of, of noble reasons, it becomes an effort, just how do we monetize all of this? And so you can see him lashing out in ways, trying to monetize, trying to monetize, which is just making the, the situation worse and worse.
3: I have so much trouble imagining that he came in for noble reasons. But what do you think of the sort of theory of the case that he came in because he was mad that he had a trans kid?
4: Yeah, I mean, that's definitely part of it. It was the Babylon Bee tweet where you know, the Babylon Bee made a joke about the trans health department. Person And Elon has a child who is trans and has a bad relationship with that child. And so I think there's something to that for sure. I mean, I think that was the thing that pushed him over the edge. I think I'm more generous to Elon maybe than you are certainly that some people are. I really, really did formally drink the Kool-Aid in that I really thought that his general intentions are good because of his worldview. I think he he really thinks the world is, is one big simulation that he's the main player, he's there to save the world. He's the hero of the story, and none of us even exist. We're all non-playing characters.
3: Will you say more on that? Because you told me about this the other night, and I'm just totally traumatized by it.
4: (laughs) Yeah. So simulation theory, you know, is the basic idea that mathematically, it actually makes sense that the world is not real. Because if you take into account that as we develop as, as, as a technology and as a civilization, We make video games that are more and more realistic. And because of the way video games work, you don't just make one playing field, but you make billions. And it actually trends towards infinite. As technology gets better, you make more and more and more of these fake worlds, and they're more and more and more realistic. And so the idea is as civilization progresses, you actually reach a point where the odds are What you are doing right now is playing an incredibly sophisticated video game because there are billions of these. The idea that you're in base reality becomes infinitely smaller and smaller a possibility. So Elon buys into this theory. So the theory is, is that everything around us is just one big simulation. But not only that, he actually believes that he's the main player in this game, because when you play a video game, most of the people you see in it are fake and only one person is real. But if you have an infinite number of video games and an infinite number of players in it, the odds that you're real become infinitely small. (laughs) That's the math behind it. He believes he's the only real person.
3: So he is real, but none of us are real.
4: None of us are real. We're all just pixels, you know, and we think we're real, just like an advanced, you know, AI-like thing would think it was real. But we're just sort of being rendered in the video game of Elon Musk's life. I really think he buys into this. And I will say that having interviewed and been and talked to many incredibly wealthy, successful people, everyone has this, a little bit of a suspicion that the world is designed around them. Because the more successful you are, you think to yourself, Well, how could I have gotten here? This is so unlikely. And you start to think of the world as being designed around you, but I think Elon takes it to another level.
3: This is an incredibly stupid time to be alive. And I would like to uh, weigh in that that is an incredibly stupid, like <laughs> shockingly, impressively stupid thing to think. Obviously, Elon Musk is smart. Is he as smart as we think he is?
4: Discuss. I think he's brilliant in a certain way. I I think he's a guy who who walks into sort of Tesla or SpaceX. He dreams incredibly big, but because he believes everything's fake, that he can get there. So his optimism is part of it and a little bit is delusion. But he truly is smart and he makes good decisions often when there's engineering problems by going for it. You know, he's willing to blow things up to get to where he's going. It's less that he's a genius in that he's incredibly good at getting really smart people to do smart things. Him in a room full of engineers can come out with an incredible outcome. It's not that he's necessarily making the thing, but he has this incredible ability to get a room full of engineers to do something they didn't think they could do. So, that, I mean, that's a form of genius. It's, it's definitely something very impressive in the tech space. You know, he, he could have flamed out many, many times along the way, but somehow he gets the people around him to work beyond where they normally thought they could go. So it's it's a mix of sort of genius and and just the ability to carve a path forward and the people around him follow him in that path.
3: So he had been sort of flirting with the far right yesterday he mm-hmm. sort of got married to them <laughs> <laughs> Went full anti-Semite, has a family history of anti-Semitism, which, again, doesn't mean you'll be an anti-Semite, but it certainly right. doesn't help. What do you think about that?
4: I talk about this a fair amount, and I never really see him personally as, as anti-Semitic or racist But I think he's very tolerant of anti-Semitic and racist memes, tweets, and people. I think for him, he loves drama. I mean, that's obvious. He loves controversy. He's turned Twitter into this outrage engine. I mean, it's all about engagement and outrage, not about truth, not about journalism, not about anything that he came in saying it was going to be about. So I do think he pushes these buttons purposefully. It's a performative form of anti-Semitism more than it is, you know, I hate Jews. I think he's one of those people who sees himself as being friends with many Jews, working well with many Jews, and is not personally anti-Semitic. But when someone tweets something that is to many people, obviously anti-Semitic, he's willing to push that tweet forward because either he thinks it's funny or he thinks it has a piece of truth to it. It doesn't affect him personally, so he doesn't see it at, that way. It's a hard, for me anyways, to look at him and say, okay, Elon Musk is anti-Semitic, because I don't really think he is, but I do look at him and say, okay, he's completely tolerant of a lot of anti-Semitic voices and Twitter's become full and full, it's, it's full on Nazism going on there. I mean, I have seen more... Holocaust denial dial and full on Hitler is great on Twitter than I've ever seen on any website in my life. I mean, going all the way back to Reddit, 4chan and, and the worst days there. It's kind of amazing that he's taken something that was so much a part of our lives in terms of news. And you, know, you used to go on Twitter and get the day's news from really smart people. And you you know, if there was a hurricane going on, you could be on a rooftop tweeting, help save me, and someone would come save you. And now you look at Twitter and it's just full-on garbage dump. And this wasn't the goal. I really, really don't believe that Elon came in with these intentions. I think it got out of his control.
3: So play this out for me. What happens next?
4: I really do believe this has affected Elon personally. I mean, he reached such a low point that he locked himself in his office for a while. And basically, uh, the people at Twitter were so concerned for his welfare, they were going to call in a wellness check on him because they thought he was going to kill himself. This was after he tweeted that poll asking, should I still be CEO? And to his shock, people said no. (laughs) He really thought everyone loves him. Um, And he got booed on stage with Chappelle. So I know he knows that it's reached a point where His reputation has been destroyed where half the country doesn't like him. He leans into it on the one side with with a lot of right-wing voices, with a lot of conspiracy theories and things like that, and anti-Semitism, but at the same time, he's trying to resuscitate himself by bringing in Linda Iaccarino, who's supposed to be the adult in the room with all the advertisers, but she has no power. She has no control, and she's just there because it's an opportunistic situation for her, and I believe she'll be gone, you know, within the next 6 to 12 months she'll be gone. And then he gets, you know, Walter Isaacson to write the big... the big glowing biography of him, which sort of was part of this one-two punch of, of reputational resuscitation. But I really think that Twitter is is X, as it's called now, is, is really spiraling down to something that's pretty much garbage. And I don't see advertisers coming back. I think engagement is going to continue to spiral down. And the only people that are going to be on it are going to be people who are there for the entertainment, or to try and sell something, but not for conversation because you get shouted out by all of the awful voices. Um, So it becomes a a subscription-based site. It becomes a much smaller site that's probably the chat room of an everything app, which he's trying to build, which is a dating website, which is a money website, which is payment structure that only a few, you know...
3: Does anyone want that?
4: Just his fan base. I can't imagine anyone outside of his, you know, cult wanting to put their finances through Elon, someone who is you know, acted very mercurially, Skeppy I guess advanced. is the first. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I think it would be crazy. Honestly, we trust Zuckerberg more than we trust Elon now, which is kind of a spectacular thing. So no, I, I don't think it will succeed, but I do think that's the direction it's going. And it's sad because I think the Twitter we knew is becoming less and less usable by the day and will will drift away. It'll be gone.
3: You think he builds an everything app for his people. They are happy to have it because they love him so much. And then what?
4: I think what happens is Elon has to claim victory in some way and then walk away from it. I mean, I really think right. the best thing that could happen the is
3: banks take it yeah, over. Yeah, he he, right? he
4: leaves. He gives it back to Jack Dorsey or something like that. Who tries to rebuild what Twitter used to be? You know, none of the clones in my mind have succeeded in any way yet. I think at some point, hopefully, someone will make something that was equivalent to old Twitter. But more likely, Elon will, will claim victory and either spin it off, and it'll rebuild itself or it'll disappear, or it'll just be much smaller. But I don't think it can it can succeed with him running it the way he's running it. And I think he'd have to step away from it for it to succeed.
3: So you think he'll make it look like he succeeded and then leave?
4: Well, I mean, that's, that's I think, I think he'll turn it into this everything app of some sort, and then he'll essentially step away from it. And Twitter, there will always be this kind of Voice box running around full of conspiracy theories and hate, and him making his random tweet now and again. But the engagement will continue to dwindle downward. There's not going to be any journalists on there. There's not going to be any news sources on there. There's not going to be any real celebrities on there. The devastation of of what the brand was will continue to the point where people will forget what the brand was. I mean, you used to go on there and there would be, you know, you'd be talking to someone who who knew what they was talking about, right? And now you can't find that anymore. So. Either that'll migrate somewhere else or that'll just be gone in a way. And everything's getting siloed. Um, What was interesting about Twitter was it was the one place that wasn't siloed where everyone kind of did interact with each other. But now it's more, you know, one person with his fans and another person with his fans. Um, which is kind of how Instagram works. And I think that maybe there comes another place where everyone can interact with each other, or maybe he spins it off and, and, and allows it to come back to life.
3: It is weird, the idea that you would have a site that was both a bank, a dating, a WhatsApp, when you don't have like the very basic user trust.
4: Yeah, he's not going to be able to succeed because he's chased everyone off that would have, you know, been the reason it worked. I don't know. I mean, I think he's got a group of faithful fans, as, as you know, you see, as I see, who are a lot of angry people who I don't know can make a site like that very successful because either there's not enough of them or or they just seem to do whatever it is he tells them to do. So it seems weird. But, you know, he's got a cult of celebrity. He's got people who love him. So he might be able to pull off some sort of everything among that group. But yes, it seems like the wrong way to go about it would be to chase everybody away and turn it into this conspiracy-laden crap fest and then try and get everyone's credit card. (laughs) It seems like that's not the best way to go about it, but... That seems to be the direction he's going.
3: What do you think about the next thing? Is this truck?
4: Yeah, the Cybertruck.
3: Yeah, I mean, is there a lot riding on this? It seems like there is.
4: I have mixed feelings about this Cybertruck. I'll confess, I put my name on the list um, when the when it was first announced to see if I could get one. I don't, I don't think I'm I'm moving high on that list, but I keep watching the different videos of it. I would. This is the Elon that I like. We we probably differ on this, but I love the science fiction Elon, who's, you know, (laughs) trying to get to space in some giant stainless steel rocket ship, who's making a ridiculous truck that will drive itself around and you can shoot machine guns at it. Like, I like that Elon. I love the drama of that Elon and the fun of that Elon. Who is that for? Okay, that's a great question. What's really intriguing about Elon is the electric car movement would be playing to the base that now dislikes Elon. Right, the Cyber Truck, the truck side of it, plays to the base that loves Elon, but the electric part of it still plays to the original base. So it's a question of honestly, you know, you have to see it on the street and see how ridiculous it looks. Does it look ridiculous, or is it going to look cool? I really don't know. I've only seen videos so far, so you know, it's hard for me to to make a statement about that. I think the idea of automatic driving cars is so powerful. That if he succeeds in that, Tesla is the trillion dollar company and, and, and everything else kind of is dwarfed by that because automatic cars that actually work and are great and everyone can have, you know, that's a huge game changer. But whether it's this truck or, or just the regular Tesla, I don't know. I'm intrigued by the truck. I actually do think it will probably have an audience for it. I mean, there's a lot of people who want them and even if it's just a novelty, it will do well for a while. Um, but it's got to work and, and it's got to be automatic for it to become a big game changer.
3: This is so interesting. I can't wait to read the book. Ben, thank you so much for joining us.
4: Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. I know I feel like there's like a a rebellion corner of Twitter X trying to keep it alive and then everyone leaving. Um, I really do think that he broke it and it broke him, but I don't think it's irredeemable. I'd love to see Elon go back to who he was and step away from this morass. But we'll see what happens.
3: John Ralston is the editor of the Nevada Independent. Welcome back. You've been here before to Fast Politics, John. Hi there. So great to have you. I wanted you to come on because I think Democrats have a real problem in your state. And I'm hoping you could talk about what the hell is happening in Nevada.
5: Well, the thing is, is that Democrats here, smart Democrats, are very, very worried. They see the trends that have been happening here since 2016. And even though they've been relatively small, you've seen slight moves to the right on the part of the Nevada electorate. You've seen a loss of the Democratic lead over the Republicans by a a few percentage points, especially in Clark County, which is where Las Vegas is, as you know, and where the Democrats have been dominant and had double-digit registration leads. It's now under 9% and going towards 8%. Uh, And every little bit's going to matter in a presidential race that has been decided here the last two cycles by about two and a half points. And so they are very, very concerned. Republicans think that the Biden is a, is a slight fade word here, but they think if certain things happen, then he can win. Trump? Yes.
3: It seems to me like your state is a perfect storm. You have a Democratic Party. So talk to me about the state of the Democratic Party in Nevada.
5: So it's still pretty good. People think that the Reed machine, which is, you know, the house that Harry Reed built 15 years ago, and there's been a formidable force in, in Nevada politics and a model For others to follow. They think that now that Harry Reid has passed away, that it's just not there anymore. And that's just not true. And they believe that in in 2022, when the Democrats won a lot and narrowly missed reelecting a very, very troubled incumbent who had been hit by, by COVID and some other issues. So the Reid machine is alive and well. They know what they're doing. They know how to find some real Democratic voters among this absolutely ocean of independent voters that have sprouted here in Nevada. But I have to say, Molly, I have been making fun of the Republican Party here for a long time. They they are a real, you know, a gaggle of clowns and unprofessionals, and so it hasn't been a fair fight. But the team that Joe Lombardo, the new governor, the new Republican governor, has put together that helped him squeak by in 2022 is still around and they know what they're doing. A lot of this is copycat stuff, right? The, uh, from from the read machine, but they have done it and they are going to be a force next year.
3: What you're saying is that the Republican Party has really gotten its shit together in your state. Well, the Republican
5: Party is still pretty much uh, as an institution in this day, a clown show. But The the governor and his people have been smart enough to bring some of those people inside the tent and neutralize them while building an an actual professional political machine, which has not been seen here on the Republican side in a long time.
3: So that's one thing. And then you have the demographic change in Nevada which I think is really important. And that's why this state should be a source of so much anxiety to all of us. But let's be honest, everything is a source of anxiety. But yes, continue. Yeah, I
2: mean,
5: listen, you know, it, Nevada, a lot of people, and I'm sure you're not this way, Molly, think that Nevada is some kind of alien world where where people are not normal and there's hookers and slot machines on every corner. And it, it's it, it's a state that doesn't behave as others do. But really, Las Vegas which is, you know, has uh, Clark County has two thirds or more of the population is a microcosm of the country. The demographic changes here. It's a real melting pot. The Hispanic vote has become hugely important here. But they've been losing the Democrats, that is, incrementally on the Hispanic vote every cycle since 2016. And so the Democrats are concerned about that. Now, a lot of people think this is, you know, it's a year out. This is the usual bad wedding that goes on. And Adam Laxall was claiming he had 50% of the Hispanic vote in 2022. And Catherine Cortez Masto still did quite well, although not quite as well, as, for instance, Obama and then Hillary did here among the Hispanics. So uh, they have concerns. And uh, uh, listen, they they are still a formidable force. The the Reed machine is still run by the same people, uh, Molly, who know what they're doing. But they're worried about the demographic changes that are going on across the country and are making Democrats very, very anxious.
3: And that's young Hispanic voters. It is
5: mostly, yeah.
3: Which, again, is not a monolith. Hispanic voters can be from Cuba. They can be from Puerto Rico. They have different needs. They have different wants. That's not a block.
5: No, that, that's absolutely right. I think we, we in, in the political analysis field, often describe these demographic groups as monoliths, and they're not. And Hispanics are a perfect example of that. You know, most of the ones here are Mexican immigrants, but there are Cubans here and they tend to be a little bit more conservative. But let me just give you a perfect example of what I'm talking about with the Republican governor's team. They have essentially co-opted one of the most prominent Hispanic leaders in this state, a guy named Peter Guzman, who was the head of the Latin Chamber of Commerce uh, and wants to be a political player. And the governor, he is on the governor's team, essentially. And that, that is in some small way how small, how marginal, I
3: don't know, going to help them. I think that's a really good point. So let me ask you, if you're in Biden world right now, what do young Hispanic voters in Nevada, what do they need? What do they want? What are they looking for Democrats to provide for them? Well, I don't think it's that different
5: than any other place. They're looking for an improvement in their economic lot, even though, as you know, uh, there's been a lot of negative media coverage of the economy in this country, it, it is it has rebounded pretty well and a lot of the indicators yeah. are pretty good. But Nevada was crushed by the COVID epidemic because we're essentially a one trick pony, right? Like our entire economy is dependent on this little strip of land called the Las Vegas Strip and it shut down. For a few months. And so our unemployment rate went way up into and uh, into like 15, 18% range. It's way down now, but it's still the highest in the country. And a lot of Hispanics are workers in the casinos. Not all of them have gotten their jobs back, younger Hispanics. Uh, and so they're not thrilled about what's happened. Well, you've been around long enough. It's not fair to blame presidents for the economy, but they do. They point at who is who is the most prominent figure they can whether it's a governor or president, depending on the cycle.
3: And that person either gets the credit, maybe, but definitely gets the blame. Some of the things that voters have really voted on in the last couple elections have been abortion, right, have been government overreach when it comes to the social issues? Like if you look at Florida, you have DeSantis, like don't say gay, deciding what books people can read, what is taught in schools. I mean, do you think that message resonates in your state? Uh, I do. uh, And especially on abortion. I think you could
5: make a pretty convincing argument that abortion, uh, that issue saved Catherine Cortez Masto in 2022. Now, it's not often that you're going to have a candidate as dumb as Adam Laxalt to say on take Roe versus Wade was always a joke and they have that audio and they can play that over and over again. But uh, whoever the Republicans nominate in that Senate race, uh, which is going to be a marquee Senate race because Jackie Rosen is considered a target, is going to be very much pro-life. And this is a pro-choice state. That's another thing people don't realize about Nevada. We have had a referendum here more, more than 30 years ago. In which they cemented the 24-week statute in place. It can only be changed by referendum. And the Democrats aren't just going to rest on that. They're going to try to get a referendum up again in 2024 to put those protections in the state constitution. I think they think that if it's not a silver bullet for them, it is going to help push very close races in their favor. And if history is a guide, they may be right. Now, again, all the caveats that go with it being, uh, you know, in November of 2023. I think they're banking on that based on what, the, what their messaging has been so far.
3: So it sounds like to me what is really important right now with Nevada is that it's not taken for granted. The Democrats focus on registering voters, speaking to young Hispanic voters, trying to get ahead of what does seem like a real demographic shift.
5: I think all of that is true. And and I think they are helped by if the Lombardo machine is, is the competitor to the Reed machine. The Lombardo machine is much more focused on state legislative races than they are on the Senate race or the presidential race, because the governor is facing potential super majorities. In both houses of the legislature, so they they will be distracted. They will not be as invested in that, and I think that helps the Democrats to some extent because they're just focused on isolated districts. Doesn't mean they can't be effective, but they they care much more about making sure that there are no super majorities in the legislature because that makes the governor essentially irrelevant, as you know, uh, because they can they can override any vetoes. So they, that's that's their main focus, and so that is in some intangible way, an advantage for the Democrats as well. But, you know, listen, they got to get their base out. They've got to they've make sure that the Hispanics still are voting in great numbers for their candidates. And that means, you're right, young Hispanics, but young voters in general, too, they, they are trying to mobilize in different ways. That's not that easy to do these days, as you know.
3: What does the state look like demographically? Well, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, are you
5: asking for, you know, Democrats, Republicans, young, old, all of it?
3: Clark County is the sort of population center, and then the rest is rural and red? Or, I mean, that's how most states are, but I'm just curious. So Nevada, I always
5: say, is essentially three states when it comes to statewide elections and presidential elections. There is Las Vegas, Clark County, which, as I said, is two-thirds of the vote, which where Democrats have an advantage, not as great as it once was, but substantial. Eight and a half percent is still substantial. Then there are 15 rural counties in between Las Vegas and the other urban center, which is Reno. Uh, And those those rural counties are all very red. Some of them so red that, you know, they want to name buildings after Donald Trump or streets after Donald Trump. That's how red they are. Then there's Reno, which is in Washoe County, which is about 15% of the vote, 18% of the vote, Molly, and that's the swing county in Nevada. That is shit that it used to be fairly reliably red, but, you know, Hillary won Washoe County, Biden won Washoe County, even Catherine Cortez Masto won Washoe County, which is where Adam Laxalt supposedly lives. I don't really think he lives very often in Nevada, but that's where (laughs) he supposedly (laughs) lives. Still, she won that So it's essentially three states, and the way you win a statewide election here, if you're a Democrat, is you build up a big enough lead in Clark County because of the advantage there to head off the the 12% of the landslide vote that you're going to lose in the rurals and then hope you can break even in Washoe County. That's the prescription that's been used for decades. It almost didn't work for Catherine Cortez Masto, but it it did by 8,000 votes.
3: So there's a Senate seat in this race that's up. It is a really, this Senate map is a shit show. I mean, it's actually, it's not a shit show. I shouldn't say that. As long as Democrats can hold on to Montana and Ohio with Sherrod, they'll be okay. But they really need to win that Rosen seat. Is Rosen a better candidate than Cortez Masto? And will she suffer some of the same problems? I mean, Cortez Masto, again, she did get reelected, so. She
5: did. You know, I guess it depends how you define better. Catherine Cortez Masto has been in politics a lot longer than Jackie Rosen has. I mean, Jackie Rosen was like an accidental candidate for Congress when Harry Reid and his folks were looking through the phone book to find somebody. And they got Jackie (laughs) Rosen, who then won and then ran for the Senate the very next cycle and beat Dean Heller in 2018 pretty decisively, actually. She has less baggage, per se, than Catherine Cortez Masto did because she hasn't been in politics as long. She's put up a pretty good organization around her. They know what they're doing. The real problem that Even if people thought that Adam Laxalt was a great candidate because of the name and former attorney general and the rest of it, he really wasn't. They have really struggled this time, the National Republicans, to find someone. And they're putting all of their hopes in, in, in Sam Brown, who has never won a race either here or in Texas And while he has a great story to tell us as this, you know, scarred veteran hero, he has not been here very long. He's taken some contradictory positions and he's got to win a primary where there there is a, you know, one of the most far right MAGA crazies who has a base, who almost won a statewide race, frighteningly enough, uh, last cycle. I think Sam Brown, if he gets out of that primary, has a chance against Jackie Rosen just because of the demographics of the state and what we've been talking about, but there's no evidence that he's a very strong candidate. He's never won anything. Imagine in a key Senate race in the country, Republicans are banking on a guy who hasn't even been in the state very long and has never won a race.
3: Yeah. I mean, luckily, you know, it's not my problem, but that seems like a terrible plan for Republicans. But uh, which, Let's not tell them, though. Right. It's the only one they've got. That's the issue. Because of how
5: successful the Democrats have been in this state, over, over the last few cycles, the Republicans don't have much of a bench. And so this is what they're stuck with.
3: Yeah. And I mean, Adam Laxall was just an amazing candidate because he did seem so unhinged.
5: Yeah, he's a ter- he was a terrible candidate. He was an embarrassment to his family, which split and then endorsed Catherine Cortez Masto, yeah. uh, just as they endorsed Sisolak before him. But yeah, I mean, he did become increasingly unhinged. He's just a right wing talking points machine. And once you get him off of that, he's going to say something like Roe versus Wade was always a joke. As you look on his campaign advisors, when they heard that one, Adam Laxalt was seen by the national media as some kind of really great candidate. He wasn't. But don't forget, even though he was not, he still almost won that race. Uh, yeah. I think of Cortez Masto, who is a good candidate and ran a good campaign.
3: I hope that Nevada can be on the national radar because treating it like a fait accompli is really a mistake.
5: Yeah, it's not not even close to a fait accompli. If Sam Brown goes out of the primary, it should be a real race because, as you know, it doesn't matter how much money he can raise. It's the outside resources that are going to drive that race, and there'll be tens of millions of dollars poured in. But if Sam Brown does not win that primary, by some chance, it's not remote either. He has a chance to lose. The Republicans won't even waste a dime here because none of their other candidates has any chance in a general election
3: when is your primary in june june so we have a little time to obsess about this john i really appreciate you coming on i really felt like it was an important story that state is a nail-biter democrats need to continue to focus on it it really is the juggernaut of the problem with you know democrats appealing to hispanic voters and If they can't do that, they're going to eventually lose the country.
5: You're absolutely right. And I I love talking about this and I love coming on with you, Molly. It's always fun to talk to you.
3: Thanks for coming. You bet. And now your moment of fuckery. Jesse Cannon.
0: Molly Jungfest, you know, there is...
3: A blast from the past. Yeah,
0: medieval families in this country. But this one is, uh, it's almost like a sleeper cell at this point. They've been gone for a little while in the news, but they're back.
3: As a person with a very large forehead, whenever she comes back into the news, I'm very conflicted because she's evil, but she does also have a large forehead. So when I see her... I am reminded of my own enormous forehead, the one, the only Rebecca Mercer. She's back. They are absolutely the most evil family. You may remember them from giving tons of money to Breitbart. They are giving $88.4 million. It's a little known $88.4 million war chest that is going to have a sizable impact on the election, and they are going to give it. To Donald J. Trump because, well, a lot of voters don't like fascism. The Mercers, they're fans. And they are the return of the Mercers, putting back the Death Star. They are our moment of fuckery. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening.
2: With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with Cheap Caribbean Vacations means you have more freedom. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas, and more, Cheap Caribbean Vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book using our exclusive budget beach finder or find a featured all-inclusive package to Hyatt Ziva Riviera Cancun at CheapCaribbean.com. That's CheapCaribbean.com. Got menopause?
3: We've got you. Hi, Jackie here, founder of ExoJackie. Feel supported throughout your menopause journey and beyond with our organic protein powders and symptom relief boosts. Formulated to keep bones and muscles strong, ExoJackie products help reduce bloating, hot flashes, and weight gain. Enjoy 20% off with promo code EXOPODCAST. Shop now at com. Made for women by women.